So this is, um, I mean, this is the pinnacle of everything, not just in the Bible, but in my opinion, universal history, what we're going to talk about here over the next um, uh, few weeks. And so this is, uh, um, I think there clearly is a hierarchy in the Bible. And that sounds like uh, kind of a bad thing to say. But remember, Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But now I tell you. In other words, establishing a hierarchy between the old and the new. And so we really are coming into something that we have to say is more elevated, is more important, is closer to the truth and to the reality. So let's pray as we begin. Father, again, we pray that you would come especially close to each one of us just now as we think about uh, this remarkable event. Help us to see things more clearly than we have previously. And as always, may we experience this closer trust and relationship with you because of our understanding. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I know that I've emphasized again and again the relationship aspect, um, that God wants us to know him as a friend. Eternal life is to know God. And, but let me just uh, bring up a verse here in Timothy that um, maybe would seem... How do we compare the two? 1 Timothy 6.16, referring to God. He alone possesses immortality. That's a pretty strong statement. He alone possesses immortality and lives in unapproachable light whom no human has ever seen or is able to see. Now, would it be kind of a cruel joke for uh, Jesus to say eternal life is to know God and all of the meaning behind that, what to know means. And then we have this verse. God lives in unapproachable light. He's unapproachable. How do you approach unapproachable light? Um, How do we reconcile the two? And as we consider maybe all of the different ways God could have revealed himself. I mean, he didn't have to come the way he did. Well, he did, but uh, we just consider the other possibilities. Would it have been helpful had God come as unapproachable light? And all of a sudden we have this, uh, you know, 30-foot tall tower of light that went around and did all kinds of things. Uh, Would that have revealed to us uh, what is necessary? What options did God have? Why didn't he just show up as, take whatever picture you have of God, but as a man, all of a sudden, there he is in Jerusalem, very intimidating presence. People come up to him and say, who are you? Uh, I'm God. Why didn't he do it that way? Or, uh, you know, a mighty prince just shows up. There he is. And he walks around. I'm God. Uh, Why didn't he do it that way? You'll remember the way um, when Samuel found Saul as king and he stood a head taller than everyone else and when people saw him, it was like, wow, now that's what we're looking for in a king. Impressive. And the people were delighted. Uh, Why wasn't Jesus, you know, just show up six foot nine, muscular, um, and uh, there he is. Why did he do it the way he did? Now, of course... We have to leave out this part of the slide here because um, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But I think, um, I mean, my goodness, we could not overemphasize this enough to just consider the implications of God transporting himself into the womb of one of his sinful children. I mean, I just think, uh, for me, it is the single most spectacular thing of all, that event. I mean, imagine you're an angel and you're with God this whole time. 
the Son of God, the Creator. And um, you've been with him for thousands of years. And all of a sudden, uh, where's God? And you're told, well, he's living in a womb. And that he is created cell by cell, neuron by neuron, um, an embryo. I mean, it's, it's really, the, the claim is really incredible. Do we really believe it? And I think, you know, yeah, we can use all the key texts that we want. God is love, God is this, God is that. Uh, but just God's action in doing things this way, I think says more about God, more about the kind of person God is than just about anything. I mean, just imagine what have we been reading about through the whole Old Testament. After sin, Adam and Eve, what are they doing? They're shaking in their boots, hiding in the bushes from the one who came walking through the garden. And that one was the one who would later on enter the womb. What is the essence of idolatry? It's always the gods are angry. They need to be appeased. Um, it's hard to be afraid of a baby, isn't it? Isn't God saying something just by the way he chose to do it? Okay, we could review some interesting neuroanatomy here, but I just like to think of the nervous system of God being created, neuron by neuron. This happens so rapidly here by day uh, by 30 uh, days, we begin to see a forebrain and a midbrain. And that uh, this is God that is developing, fully God, fully human. Now we just consider, even by six months in utero, the brain is still relatively flat. We don't have the sulcus and the gyrus, and this takes some time to develop. And we consider here, if we have a premature baby at 26 weeks, we're just beginning to see some electrical brainwave. Activity. I mean, just to consider that God in human form uh, for a period of time did not have that electrical brain activity. I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom, really, and that becoming a helpless baby. Um, again, who is afraid of a baby? Uh, is that part of the message? I mean, I just think the way that God did it is remarkable. And so we get this list here in Matthew 1.1, which maybe seems... Oh, another long list of names. That's what we don't like about the Old Testament. Uh, but no, this is very, very significant. This is the list of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, who was a descendant of Abraham. So we get the list from Abraham to King David. The following ancestors are listed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah and his brothers, then Perez and Zerah. And notice their mother was Tamar. Do you remember the story of Tamar? Uh, we talked about this last year, and uh, what we're considering is, you know, we can't choose our relatives, our family tree. Uh, there's only one time that a person actually had the opportunity to choose his family tree, and this is what Jesus would choose. So let's go back to the story of Tamar. Judah, I mean, we think of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, must have been, boy, the greatest guy in the world. But we just read about Judah and how he married a Canaanite woman, and while he's married to this Canaanite woman... He saw another woman and he thought that she was a prostitute because she had her face covered. He went over to her at the side of the road and said, all right, how much do you charge? He did not know that she was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. About three months later, someone told Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a whore and now she is pregnant and Judah ordered, take her out and burn her to death. I mean, isn't that incredible? And so we come back here and we see that Judah, uh, that his children, Perez and Zerah, the mother was 
um, his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, what does this say about God that he would even associate with a family line like this? And then we go on to Boaz. It's interesting, the women are all kind of here in parentheses. His mother was Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Obed, his mother was Ruth, who was a Moabitess. About the most cruel God you can possibly imagine was the God of the uh, Moabites. And there she is in the family line. Then we read on to David. Of course, we know all the things that David did. Solomon, we know all the things that Solomon did. And it's almost like Matthew here, he just, he just can't write it. His mother was the woman who had been Uriah's wife. Why not just say Bathsheba? I mean, it's such a horrible, dark, disturbing event. King David, um, that he slept with Bathsheba, had her husband killed. Um, it's such so dark and disturbing, the woman who had been Uriah's wife. Um, but yet, I think this is incredibly good news because what is God doing? He is fully identifying himself with the worst of us, with the entire human race. He came into this family line. We could go through all of these kings and all the horrible things they did. Manasseh, who killed so many people, the streets flowed with blood. And that this, these are the people that Jesus chose um, as his family tree. So what do we know about Jesus? He always had the nature of God, the character of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. And that say he is equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. And as this description in Philippians goes on, it just describes him going down, 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 uh, dead in a tomb. Um, again, more than any key texts or claims we could make about what God is like, uh, God's actions speak much louder than his words, just in what he actually did. So we read about the birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. And what is a manger? Feeding trough. Because there was no place for them in the inn. So first night... Again, could have chose, I mean, couldn't he have been born into a royal family, spent his first night in a palace, and first night is spent uh, in a manger, in a feeding trough. And so this very day, and the announcement goes out to the shepherds, in David's town, your Savior was born, Christ the Lord. And this is what will prove it to you. What would prove it to them? You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Is that proof? And then notice, suddenly, a great army of heaven's angels appeared with the angel, singing praises to God, glory to God in the highest. And in the highest means to the highest extreme that God can possibly be praised. And again, I just think, uh, boy, you're the angels here, and you're watching this take place. God in human form is born, and they just can't contain themselves anymore. And they just bust out with this, uh, the highest possible praise, and if there is a great controversy over the character of God, if one-third of the angels, for whatever reason, were deceived in this whole process, and if even in their minds, and we'll come to this in the New Testament, that they are even learning about the good news and these kinds of things, I mean, would this not have a settling effect on them? My goodness, here's Satan doing all these things. What does God do? Enters the womb, born as a poor baby. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite striking, the contrast. Remember the verses we read in Isaiah and in Ezekiel where Satan is trying to go higher, 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 killing anyone in his way. 
And what would God do? The exact opposite. Lower, lower, and lower. In Hebrews, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Remarkable. So that through God's grace, he should die for everyone. We see him now crowned with glory and honor because of the death he suffered. It was only right that God who creates and preserves all things should make Jesus perfect through suffering. Now, this might be a little bit um, unsettling. Does that mean Jesus was ever not perfect? He was made perfect. And I just think it invites us to go all the way back. I wish we had lots and lots of stories of Jesus' childhood. Wouldn't that be interesting? But I don't think it's sacrilegious just to imagine Jesus as a boy. Was he perfect at every stage? Here's an apple bud that becomes a blossom. Is it perfect? Yes. Is it mature? No. And that gradually we have this whole process, again, perfect at every stage, the flower and so on. And then finally we have the actual apple. So I would see Jesus in that way. Was he omniscient in the womb? I mean, you know, no, he had to grow. And actually he never had uh, omniscience as, as a human, but he matured, but yet perfect at every stage. So is it wrong to just imagine that uh, God in human form had to be potty trained and had a diaper that had to be changed? Uh, is it sacrilegious to think about these things? I, I think it's good news that God would come down to such a helpless stage. We imagine Jesus uh, working in the garden, perhaps. What does it mean to be perfect? Do you think um, he ever accidentally pulled up a weed? Or when he was pulling weeds, accidentally pulled up a plant? Is that a sin? No. Um, sure, he made mistakes like that, but that's not uh, the definition of perfection. Or when he was a carpenter and his dad asked him to measure, to cut a piece of wood at a certain length. If we had come on with modern technology and we could measure Jesus' cut down to the nth degree, would it be off just a little bit? Sure. That's not what it means to be perfect. He was perfect in character at every stage of development. And then again, just what the circumstances. Uh, growing up in Nazareth, and we know the reputation, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Again, it says something about God the way he chose to do this. And when he was a man trying to give his message, they scoffed. He's just a carpenter. And I think uh, the thing here is God did not want to gain any attraction based on the things that we are normally attracted to. Wealth, power, looks, all of those things. Um, he came to bring a message. He came to reveal something, and it was the message only that was to have the drawing power, not uh, all of the things that, that we typically look for uh, to impress us, power and all of those other things. He's just a carpenter. So we think, who's that God of the Old Testament? Well, we've tried to make the case before that that's none other than the Son. So here's a good description of the God of the Old Testament. I am a God who is everywhere and not in one place only. No one can hide where I cannot see them. Do you not know that I am everywhere in heaven and on earth? Now, that's a pretty um, strong statement about God's power. And we've said before that this same God laid aside all of those divine prerogatives. I mean, Jesus was not everywhere at the same time. He was not omniscient. When asked about the second coming, remember he said, well, only the Father knows the date of some of these things. Uh, was he omnipotent? I mean, listen to this statement. So Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing on his own, 
He does only what he sees his father doing. What the father does, the son also does. Jesus came, he laid aside these divine prerogatives because what did he come to reveal? He came to reveal what God is like, came to reveal his character. That is the essence of why he came. And also, he came to show us the way to live. What's the way to live? We completely trust in God. We completely trust in our Heavenly Father. And we do everything through that complete trust in God. In other words, Jesus is our perfect example of how to live in every way. So one more description of this in John 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word was a source of life and this life brought light to people. This was the real light, the light that comes into the world and shines on all people. In other words, the unapproachable light approached us in the only way possible, which was to become a human being. The Word became a human being and full of grace and truth lived among us no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And I think the Message Bible translates this uh, at some point as God moved into the neighborhood. But just the meaning of Emmanuel. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, or God is with us. And so we have this message first by John the Baptist and by Jesus was the same message. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when we read just a chapter later, Jesus began to preach and said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the New King James Version. And what's interesting about this Greek word for repent here, which is metanoia, and can you kind of imagine neurology here? Noia is brain. And meta is change, just like metamorphosis. So the literal meaning of this word is to change your mind, to change directions, to change your mind. And so other translations go this direction. Turn to God and change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus' words are translated. Jesus began to tell the people, turn to God and change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven is near. So yes, repent, that's fine. We, we turn away from the way that we were living and we turn to God. But I also like thinking, change the way you think. I mean, what did Jesus come to change about the way we think? Ultimately, came to change the way we think about God. And that's uh, what it essentially is saying here in this word. We change, we turn around different directions based on a new understanding of who God is. So these words about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus would say, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. All this about the kingdom of heaven. And um, the, the kingdom of God, as Jesus revealed it to be, was just night and day different than what anyone expected. Certainly the Pharisees, but notice even the disciples, I mean, they kept asking, um, can I sit at your right side? And even in Acts, you read when Jesus goes back up to heaven, they ask, now are you going to establish your kingdom on earth? Okay, the, the idea about what the kingdom was is not at all what Jesus came to reveal about his kingdom. He came to reveal a kingdom, notice, where the, someone who humbles himself and becomes like a little child, that's number one in my kingdom. And he would say, the kingdom of God has already come to you because I'm the king of that kingdom. And the kingdom of God is within you. He came to establish a kingdom within. And some translations 
among, a kingdom within and among his people, an entirely different kingdom than any earthly kingdom of power and might. That's the kingdom he came to establish. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Remember, we're going to come to this next time, the uh, Matthew 5, his first sermon. But you can see why this just rubbed people the wrong way. What are the Pharisees looking for? Finally, the king has come. Now we're going to defeat our national enemies. Let's hear what he has to say. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. This is, it's not the message that they wanted to hear. Happy are the spiritually poor. Okay, the people who are willing to listen, those are the people that Jesus came to reach and they realized that they were spiritually poor. Fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes. Um, it's often the, you know, the more religious people who have more understanding that are perhaps the hardest to reach because they're not open to considering things in a new way. So why did Jesus come? Well, um, just some things that are frequently used to describe. Jesus came to die, to pay the price for my sins. Now, understood in a certain way, I would agree with this, but understood in a certain way, and there are some, some dangers here if in our mind we just say, well, Jesus came to die. Then what does that do? Well, it, it devalues significantly the words, the actions, everything that was revealed um, about God by Jesus if he just came to die. Well, let's skip forward to uh, see what Paul has to say about why Jesus had to die and skip over the Gospels. It de-emphasizes that. And also, uh, I think that mindset just tends to... I mean, Jesus came to establish a new kingdom. He came to heal his people. And if the entire emphasis is he just came to pay the price, then our life on earth really just becomes we're just waiting to die so we get to heaven. There really isn't that much that we're supposed to accomplish on this earth as Christians, and uh, we're just waiting to, uh, to arrive in heaven someday. No, he came to do something uh, radical, as we'll discuss, through his people. We're not just in limbo. Saved by the blood. Well, certainly, but let's understand um, what, what does it mean to be saved by the blood? And I, I think it's okay to ask these questions and try to understand as much as possible. Can we say it more clearly than that? Is there any symbolism involved here? I didn't put up the Mel Gibson quote, but when his movie came out about uh, the death of Jesus several years ago, um, he said uh, Jesus could have solved the whole problem by pricking his finger, but he decided to go all the way. Now, could Jesus as, as an adult, do we literally too, true, pricked his finger, gone back to heaven, problem solved? What is it about the blood? Uh, if we think about just blood, what, um, what parts of the blood? Are we saved by neutrophils or platelets? Or um, Again, not to, not to agitate here too much, but can we put any more plain speech understanding on, on what these phrases mean? Because, of course, what, what tends to work in our minds a little bit is that in some way, uh, one member of the Godhead was, uh, was satisfied, was appeased by the shed blood of Jesus. And um, I think we can go down a kind of a dangerous road and in our minds, we begin to separate Jesus from God. Jesus becomes the one who satisfied the real God, Father. Okay, we need to make Jesus and God synonymous. Okay, Jesus is the substitute, God is the substitute. Jesus is our intercessor, God is the one who intercedes. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what does it mean to be saved by the blood? Well, uh, of course, that blood was almost shed very early on. And we read about how the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Herod will be looking for the child in order to kill him. Don't you think Satan was perhaps behind that just a little bit? So get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to leave. Now, if the entire purpose of the mission was so that blood could be shed, that could have happened as a baby. Would that have solved the problem? Why is the angel down there trying to rescue Jesus? I mean, no, we are saved by the blood, but Jesus became a flesh and blood human being. He came to live. He came to teach. He came to reveal things to us. So the blood, I think we should not just associate with the shed blood on Calvary, but that God himself became a flesh and blood human being. Jesus' words about the blood. If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And when he said this very plainly to his disciples, what did he say? Eternal life is to know God. But those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. Now, he's not talking about cannibalism here. There's some meaning. What is, does it mean to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus? And I will raise them to life on the last day, for my flesh is the real food. My blood is the real drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, notice, live in me and I live in them. Okay, now he's explaining it just a little bit. And I think to eat the flesh, to drink the blood, means that everything that Jesus came to reveal about God, this truth about his heavenly Father, just like we drink something, we eat something, what happens? It becomes a part of our whole body. It diffuses throughout the entire body, and we become one. They live in me and I live in them at one with God. Said in another way, John 17, I pray that they may all be one. Notice how this is emphasized, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I mean, what is this describing? It's, this is an intimacy. This is becoming one. He came to make us at one with God and also at one with each other. And... Um, here I have to thank my wife for writing a wonderful paper on the atonement and the meaning of atonement, which I think to our ears in 21st century, just maybe we have a different understanding of the atonement. If we look up Webster's, it is a reparation for an offense or injury. You atone for something wrong that you did or dictionary.com to make amends. Okay, what does the atonement mean? Well, if we go all the way back to the Latin it means it's a combination of ad or to, at, and unum. So literally it is at one. To at one or the at one-ment. It is two things coming together to be one. That was the meaning of the word going all the way back. It's changed now. We have a different understanding of the uh, at one-ment. In 16th century, again, at one. And you go back to Shakespeare, uh, where this is used, it is about reconciliation, two parties coming together. It literally is an at-one-ment. And of course, the other interesting thing is we use this term when we talk about, well, what atonement model do you uh, belong to? 
and it's one of the most hotly debated things in uh, Christianity. But if we understand the meaning, the original meaning of the word atonement, we're really saying, well, what relationship model do you belong to? And then now it puts us in a totally different frame of mind. The word atonement in the King James, it's only used one time in Romans 5.11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Okay, and so we look to see um, modern translations. What does this mean? Going back to the Greek. And notice, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. I mean, isn't that wonderful? The meaning of the atonement biblically is to be in relationship and to be friends with God. And Jesus came. Yes, the atonement is all about the relationship, the healing of the relationship between us and our God. And it's so plain in so many places where Jesus would say, you know what, I don't, I no longer call you servants because servants don't know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. So he came to do something much different in us. I mean, the master-servant relationship, um, yes, God is our master, we are the servants, but that is one way of uh, perhaps at one point in time. We consider things that way. And Jesus said, you know what? I really don't want to call you servants any longer. I'd like to call you friends. He's looking for something uh, much closer, much more intimate than a master-servant kind of relationship. Okay, so everything that we will be describing, I think, is the atonement. It's God's attempts to reconcile. And I think ultimately we'd have to say that's not just something that began now. I mean, hasn't God been trying to atone to at one going all the way back to when Adam and Eve sinned. So everything is a process of atonement. What goes in in our minds as we consider and choose to come closer to God, to enter closer into relationship, that is describing the atonement at work in us. So it's interesting that the first thing, Jesus is baptized, first thing that happens is this. Then the Spirit led Jesus, and the book of Mark says it drove him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after spending 40 days and nights without food, Jesus was hungry. Is this not one of the biggest understatements in the whole Bible? No food for 40 days and nights, and he was hungry. Okay, now it's really interesting. Uh, some have talked about the relative absence of Satan in the Old Testament, although we've had opportunity to bring it up all the way through. And uh, one explanation I like is that, I mean, what were the people in Old Testament times doing? Worshiping everything under the sun. And so... I think, in a sense, God veiled Satan somewhat in the Old Testament. And what's the first thing that Jesus comes to do? To expose him, to defeat him. And in the New Testament, Satan is all over the place, described left and right. Okay, immediately Jesus says, okay, we're going to reveal, expose, and destroy Satan. So the Son of God appeared for this very reason, to destroy what the devil had done. And ultimately what the devil I think had done was to completely distort our understanding of who God is, uh, completely distort our understanding of his character, and Jesus came to defeat that. And it's just interesting, out here in the desert, you know, that we contrast this with Genesis, beginning of the Old Testament, Eve is tempted by a piece of fruit. And beginning now of the New Testament, well, we're back to food again. But I just want to just consider a little bit. You know, I mean, Satan... I would assume knew that uh, he's going to have this opportunity. 
and he had some time to plot and to think about this. Um, I mean, what would be the best way to tempt Jesus if you're Satan? And is this really the best he could do? Then the devil came to him and said, If you are God's son, order these stones to turn into bread. Um, is that much of a temptation for any of us? You wake up in the morning, there's no food in the kitchen, and um, that's not much of a temptation for us. We can go the other direction. We can turn bread into stones, but not stones into bread. Um, but what's... Um, you know, that's the one thing about this Bible study. I wish we had more time for interaction. We're trying to get it th through in two years, so there isn't. But what's, uh, what's the temptation here from Jesus' perspective? Or is there one word in this sentence that stands out at you and just says, whoa. Yeah, I heard someone say, if. If you are God's son, wouldn't this imply uh, some doubt? And uh, a need in Jesus, perhaps, well, I better prove it. Yes, I am God's son. Because if we just go back a few verses after the baptism, a voice came from heaven. This is my own dear son with whom I am pleased. And here we have 40 days later, hey, if you're God's son, prove it. Now, would it have been wrong to, for Jesus to change the stones into bread? What would have happened had he changed the stones into bread? Was this, um, was this out of harmony with, uh, with God's character at all. Certainly could have done it. Well, the one thing about the miracles of Jesus, I would say, is that every single miracle was done for others. If you go through every single one, it was never done for selfish reasons. Now, there's some, some challenges to, to making that claim, but we'll go through those difficult ones. But I would say every single thing he did was for others. And Satan, just so subtly, I think, is trying to nudge him to shape his kingdom in a different way. Well, just, let's just imagine that Jesus had not just changed the stones into bread, but he snaps his finger and there's just a smorgasbord, incredible array of food. And then Jesus says, you know what, why am I wearing these clothes? And he immediately changes into some new outfit. And then he says, you know what, Satan, you're dead. And uh, Satan keels over. I mean, to use power in that way, um, just to begin to go down that road would be so dangerous. Now, I would actually say, could Jesus have done those things? Because I just said he did everything through trust in his father. And um, so this really would have been out of character um, for God to have done that. And this was a temptation all the way through. I just think it reminds me of the Garden of Eden where Satan said, did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Again, it's so subtle. We almost miss it, uh, which is, you know what? You're really not free, are you? You can't eat any fruit around here. It's so subtle. Just a gently nudge to cause a little bit of distrust, a little bit of separation from God. And the same thing here. If it was to create distance between Jesus and his father. And we'll notice that how many times Jesus was confronted with this. Remember some teachers of the law and Pharisees said, teacher, we want to see you perform a miracle. Do something. How evil and godless are the people of this day, Jesus exclaimed. You ask me for a miracle? No. The only miracle you will be given is the miracle of the prophet Jonah. And so Jesus refused time and time again to do anything to uh, prove himself. Remember when he did miracles uh, so many times, what did he say? Please be quiet about it. Don't tell anyone. And again, some Pharisees and Sadducees who came to Jesus wanted to trap him. 
So they asked him to perform a miracle for them to show that God approved of him. And he never did it for those reasons. And as he's hanging on the cross, they came up again. You are going to tear down the temple and build it back in three days. Save yourself if you are God's son. And uh, I mean, Jesus, I mean, you think about what he went through in Gethsemane. Was he tempted to doubt that maybe his father wasn't with him? And maybe this is a time just to burst out, reveal some power. Uh, you know, 10 people kill over at the foot of the cross. And um, then maybe they'd all be down on their knees worshiping him. But he never did it. And Jesus responded. And I just like how with Satan, all he did was quote the Old Testament. The scripture says, human beings cannot live on bread alone, but need every word that God speaks. Okay, we just imagine Satan, this, I'm sure, very powerful figure, full of health. Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days or nights. Um, There's the contrast there, but yet Jesus turned him down. So Satan tries again. Then the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, set him on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are God's son, throw yourself down for the scripture says, now isn't this incredible? Satan quoting scripture, God will give orders to his angels about you. They will hold you up with their hands so that not even your feet will be hurt on the stones. I mean, isn't that incredible that Satan can can quote scripture? Okay, so now it's a little bit different. Yeah, prove yourself. Jesus, if you're God's son, prove yourself. And by the way, you're not afraid of heights, are you? Um, Way up here? Come on, if you're God's son, throw yourself off. And I've quoted scripture here to prove that you'll be just fine. And Jesus answered. But the scripture also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I mean, he's not adding any words here. He's just saying the very minimum, quotes from scripture, and we move on from one temptation to the next. Then the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their greatness and said, all this I will give you if you kneel down and worship me. And this is so consistent with what we've read about Satan in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. And as we'll discuss in other places, ultimately what he wants, what he craves is to be worshiped as God. And here I just think uh, the satanic psychosis takes over in his own mind and it just outcomes with what he really wants kneel down and worship me. I mean, Satan, mighty being there with Jesus, so weak. And uh, I mean, do you think, boy, from Jesus' point of view, wouldn't it have been nice uh, to not be pestered by Satan right and left at every turn? And if he'd worship Satan, then, uh, boy, he'd leave, leave me alone. Maybe I'd be more successful in my earthly mission. All right, but of course, we know the reply. And I love the Message Bible. Jesus' refusal was curt, beat it, Satan. And um, I know I mentioned this several times, but I just think it's neat that this phrase in the Greek is just the harshest way to tell someone to get lost. Beat it, Satan. He backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only him. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. The test was over. The devil left. And in his place, angels. Angels came and took care of Jesus' needs. And I just think this is really neat because, I mean, Lucifer was an angel, a fallen angel. And the angels are, I think, intensely watching this whole scene. I mean, the whole great controversy has just been spread out for them. And as soon as it's over at the first opportunity, uh, boy, they're there uh, to help Jesus. So next time we will uh, start with Matthew 5 and uh, just read through, if you can, the Matthew 5 through about 8. We'll spend most of our time going through those chapters next time. Father, thank you so much. We are just in awe of what uh, you actually did. 
in becoming a human. And uh, may we take very seriously your words, everything that you revealed about your Father, and may we internalize this, may it become a part of us, and again, may we effectively reveal this to all those around us. In your name we pray, amen.